everybody, I'm the drunk phytologist, Dr. Rochelle Lapham, aka Phyto or DP, and I use the pronoun she, her. And I'm Ethan Lapham, uh, also known as Talkman363, and I use pronouns uh, he, him. And this is Natural 20. <laughs> Natural 20 is a podcast that discusses the lore, history, and biology of Dungeons and Dragons, creatures, and monsters. Natural 20 is also an adult podcast featuring adult language. You have been warned. Hey, everybody. We're back. Um, <laughs> sorry, we have a cat here right now that is super excited about us sitting downstairs. So if you hear purring, that's Aragorn. He's helping us out. So we're actually going to be starting a two-part episode. That's what we decided, right? Two-part episode. Yep. And it's going to be on... Goblinoids, specifically goblins, hobgoblins, bugbears, because there's a lot to unpack there. And very hard to sort of disentangle. Yeah. They are sort of wounded, despite being distinct entities over the course of the history, they are both in their original sort of folklore setting as well as in D&D and other literature, sort of very tightly entangled, mm-hmm. where it's, it's hard to say, we're just going to talk about goblins, or we're just going to talk about bugbears. Yeah, and we did think about doing that, but we just didn't think that there was quite enough to do them all justice um, that way, but also a little too much to put in just one episode. So we're going to try to unpack that as best we can (laughs) for you guys. Now, a word of warning up front, goblins less so, but I know it's, it's come back around as a conversation of sort of the problems with monstrous humanoid races and their you know, connotations within the real world. So it's definitely something we are aware of, and we will try to deal with it as, you know, directly and fairly as possible. If this is an investigation of a, you know, monster in the monster manual, but it is also a playable race. It is also, you know, these are intelligent beings. They speak languages. They have, you know, organization. And so there's there's some depth here. So, you know, word of, of warning kind of up front. You know, we're not, it's not anything like, squicky you know there's not like lots of blood and guts and you know hopefully a limited number of you know teeth where they don't belong in these particular episodes but more of just a social understanding that less so than orcs which are one of the the big sort of problematic races goblins are still in that continuum of like how do you deal with an intelligent you know group of beings and have them all be evil like the drow like orcs like goblins (laughs) So we are understanding of that, and it's something we'd look to address uh, a little more formally in the second episode, but just wanted to get it out there up front, kind of as we get started. We are aware of kind of where a lot of this kind of lies, and there's some dark edges to some of those. Mm-hmm. So thank you for all being patient with us. Um, also, just to be upfront, both of us are very white. Um, uh, glow in the dark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I do have uh, people of color in my family, but I am not one of those. And our culture primarily is European, Protestant. Yeah, Northern European <laughs> specifically. Northern European specifically. So we'll do our very best when dealing with some of these different cultural references and other societal societally yeah societal um especially if it is when it's not our culture we we are probably will mess something up and we're very sorry if we do do not feel bad about calling us out uh because and we're here to learn just like you guys are 
All so right. if there's something we overlook or that we bring up that's just dead wrong, call us on it, please. Yes, we will please. happily address it. Okay. But in any event, let's get... Let's get no. now, now, now we can do... So let's do our creature feature. Yay! So our creature feature today is kobolds. Yay! Which we could actually probably do an episode on them uh, in the future. So kobolds are small, lizard-like people, monsters, and I've had a lot of fun using them in a variety of different games. We have mentioned before Tucker's kobolds. Yes, very famous usage of kobolds in their ingenuity with traps and tunneling and traditional dungeon making. Tucker's kobolds are kind of a fascination in what a low-level monster with the right resources can really do to even high-level parties and be even more terrifying in some instances than large solo monsters. Mm -hmm. And they can also make a lot of fun NPCs. We'll say Chris Perkins is uh, famous for his kobold splurt in uh, the second season of Critical Role where he uh, lived for maybe about half of a (laughs) half of a session. (laughs) That kobold had a lifespan of two weeks. Yes. In game. In game. Well, it's because they asked him how old he was, and he said 12 days. <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you can also, so for example, in our home campaign, we have three kobolds, which have decided to worship the party's pet fairy dragons Yes. as gods, because kobolds do worship dragons. Basically and, all of dragon And kind. all of dragon kind, because they want to be like dragons. And so they are convinced that the party's pet fairy dragons are indeed gods and follow them around as very faithful servants. And their names are Skitter, Splitter, and Steve. And Skitter, Splitter, and Steve have had lots of fun adventures. (laughs) So far, one of them has become a warforged and is slowly being built into a spy hunter kobold with like built-in grease traps and extra functionality. And they have also built pit traps underneath the party's inn. In the party's absence. Yes. That was the most recent thing. Yeah. Every once in a while, um, if we have someone who can't make our game, but there's a few people who still want to play, they get to play as our kobold friends and get to have misadventures throughout town. So that is a fun... And playing as a kobold is entertaining. If you have any other ideas, it would be definitely go wild with it. Um, A most recent kobold-featured sort of game is a... A really good friend of mine, Caldronon on Twitter, has designed a new RPG called Three Kobolds in a Trench Coat. This was based off of a joke <laughs> between myself, Scout at Yeehaw Scout on Twitter, as well as our friend Shiny Batgirl, um, that we are all the same person and are really just three kobolds running around in a trench coat. Or in a lab coat, in my case. Yes. And so the joke was, is Calgernon made it an actual game that we are going to play test soon. So you are three kobolds in a trench coat. And you have to pick a goal. But you have to be able to accomplish your goal and have humans not figure out that you're really kobolds. Right. So... There are a couple different stats, and I'm sure you can look it up. As I said, we haven't play-tested it completely yet, but um, you have your trench coat stat, which is more your physical stats. You have your hat. You're wearing a fedora, by the way. 
and that's your smarts. And then you have sunglasses, which is your charisma to be cool and bluff and do other fun things like that. And so Cal is a fantastic designer and has made a variety of things on DMs Guild, so you should check him out. So let's get into the topic at hand. Goblins. Tell me about goblins, Ethan. <laughs> goblins and hobgoblins and bugbears. Oh my. Oh my. <laughs> so collectively, the three sort of goblinoid races are goblins, hobgoblins, and bugbears. And in the you know early editions, they are sort of called out as being unique individual groups. But they very quickly become, I think even as early as second edition, are started to be put into the same camp. And you will find in large enough groups that you will typically have all three as sort of a roving war band. But they really are three unique races. I mean, they, they each have their own attributes, their own style. They all speak goblin as a language, but it, it is sort of hinted that they may have some of their own dialects almost as, as a subset of that. And so, you know, goblins are kind of the, the quintessential, you know, little green men sort of, you know, monster, right? They're an early, low-level threat generally. But as you increase in level, sometimes the, the biggest threats are not necessarily individually tough, but it's more the fact that you have a, an organized, collected group. And so goblin is, and, and hobgoblin and bugbear really all collectively as terms even are oddly interchangeable if you look back through folklore, if you look back through um, kind of the history of you know, D&D as well as some of its you know, sources. So for, for instance, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien interchangeably used orc and goblin um, throughout his work. And, and sort of specifically called out, you know, as a linguist and kind of his, his focus was on language, that, you know, orc was a term that maybe, you know, groups like the writers of Rohan um, used more than, you know, goblin that may have been used by other, you know, races of men in, in Middle-earth. So, and, and really the terms look at, you know, spirits. So they are, you know, different fey folk that are involved in... So, you know, goblins may just be a, a spirit out in the woods, whereas your hobgoblin was like a house goblin, that they were, you know, countryside visitors in some instances. And then bugbear is a very odd term. We actually looked into this just a little a little bit ago, and it was it effectively is boogeyman in several different languages. So it sort of points to just it's this creature and and the you know, the, the Germanic description was it was basically a bear. Mm-hmm. And using the, the old English term bug, meaning spooky. Yes. So it's literally scary. spooky bear. Spooky bear. <laughs> In the way of Germanic languages, man, very direct. Um, imagine, if you would, a spooky bear. But, you know, the, the bug bear in D&D is not a bear at all. It is an overly large, very hairy, almost, it looks more like a werewolf than it does a bear. Right? They tend yeah. to be very hairy, large pointed ears, you know, sort of sloping foreheads, long arms. Mm-hmm. Kind of the, the differentiator for, for bugbears is the long arms and the ability to, to reach out and like grab things. And it is kind of their defining characteristic that separates them versus you know your hobgoblins tend to be the more you know, smart and organized. And then goblins are the like wild, chaotic force that is thrown at the forefront with... 
know, beasts and, and slaves and, you know, much tooth gnashing and just, you know, greed. And, it, you know, we have to have food and, and treasure and, you know, just sort of ravage the countryside. It's sort of, yeah, you know, that, that kind of begins the trouble is it's like, how do you have this you know, tribal organized group and their whole purpose is just ravage things and take the gold and, and dance around gleefully? So they are, you know, somewhat intertwined and, and they do work together, but they also work independently. Mm-hmm. So you have these goblins that are, you know, roving around looking for food. Maybe they've got a, a cave that they spend their time in and you know, collect shiny trinkets. And that's just kind of their thing, you know, just sort of a local problem. Well, and how about we go into the stats then? Like, if we're we're gonna, let's get into the goblins at least a little bit more specifically, and then we can do a little bit of the biology of that and then get into more of your bugbears and um, hobgoblins and stuff, at least. Before we go off on all the tangents. (laughs) As I said, it's very hard to separate these three in their their current format. All right. So current format. So back to small humanoid goblinoid. Neutral evil. We'll already kind of discussed a little bit of that problem. Um, There's plenty of instances in the current, you know, D&D sphere where, you know, Sam Regal on Critical Role plays goblin. Although that goblin got changed later. Spoilers. Anyway, but there are also different playable races, at least in Jorhas, the country that the Critical Role group is in. Spoilers. Goblins are part of this overarching society, and they have government organized, like all of these different sorts of things, and so it's a totally a different kind of cultural feel. And the same is true if you look at Eberron as kind of the other you know, published campaign setting that is separate from Forgotten Realms, is that in Eberron, you know, goblins there were part of a globe-spanning empire that then has fallen and splintered, and there are separate groups, you know, some that are just sort of the classic roving war band, but others that are militaristic, they are rank and file, they have an understanding of hierarchy and order. So it's not to say that goblins always have to be this just evil menace in the woods, yep. you know, raiding towns. A friend of ours played a goblin character, a gunslinger, that was part of this empire in Eberron, for our Eberron campaign. And then also, isn't there a type of goblin in Chult? Yes. yes. The, uh, what is it, the Batiri War Goblins. Batiri War Goblins, yep. That will form war stacks and fight <laughs> from each other's shoulders. And so, at least currently, in the 5th edition Monster Manual, we have armor class of 15, hit point 7, <laughs> speed of 30 feet. Mm-hmm. Our strength, we've got minus 1 modifier, so strength of 8, not real strong. Lots of decks, though, 14, a plus 2 for it was like a low-level monster. So they, their challenge rating would be a quarter. And then we've got a con of 10, so average intelligence, 10, average Wisdom, minus one. Not great, not super wise. Charisma, minus one. Stealth, proficient, plus six. They have dark vision, up to 60 feet. They speak common. English. Ah, <laughs> uh, the universal, universal language. language. English. English. And <laughs> goblin. They have what's called nimble escape, which means they can take the disengage or hide action as a bonus action on each of their turns. And then their actions include any sort of melee weapon, you know, basic attack. And in this, they have a scimitar, a short bow, but there's no reason that they, can u- they can't use any other sort of 
Right. Small, simple. Weapon. And the reason for that, you know, one quarter challenge rating is that is per goblin. Yes. Right. So if you're only going to throw one goblin, yeah, they're kind of going to get overwhelmed. They're not designed for one on one combat. Problem is, goblins are designed for Groups. numbers. <laughs> yeah. It, it is all about getting a group out in front of a team. And again, if they're working in conjunction with the other goblinoid races, it may be. This is the distraction force mm-hmm. for something else worse to come in and, and really kind of wreck the force. party. So, do you want to get into what are the lore of these guys? Again, yeah, I'm trying to keep goblins separate as their own entity. So, for now. <laughs> yeah, for now. Yeah, the, the goblin, like I said, it's sort of a classic feature of, of D&D and that they have this kind of constant like glee and searching for treasure. But they also, sort of as a, as a distinct feature, as, and as their kind of defining feature as the piece of the, the overall war band, is that they tend to be, you know, beast keepers. That they ride wolves and, and drive hordes of rats into enemies and use that to their advantage. That they are, you know, animal tenders. Because, you know, again, when you're small and you've got a challenge rating of a quarter, you know, and you've got you know, limited strength, it's hit-and-run tactics, it's ambushes... Having a couple of wolves in that mix suddenly changes the balance. You know, looking at that, and, and on top of that, they're known as kind of, you know, the Lash Masters. And their individual deity is represented by this, you know, red and yellow whip that is, you know, meant to be this driving force and sort of the, the leaders of goblins amongst goblin kind are the, you know, he who controls the whip controls the group kind of thing. They are very much driven by that sort of lash and fear and that can lead to the the image of this you know kind of gleeful raider you know from the outside but if, you know they are still a, a society that is going to have children there have to be more goblins coming from somewhere they're not just springing out of rocks dwarves pop up for a hole out of holes in the ground right <laughs> um and it's not 40k orcs that are some sort of fungal infestation that springs from the earth Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, that's a whole thing. <laughs> um, we can definitely get into that discussion when we when we talk orcs and, you know, applying that logic to Woof. a and d game. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Orcs in the, in the 40K universe are horrifying. They're a big, big problem in Warhammer. It's one of those, like, you know, you can have a little, orc, a little bit of orcs as a treat. No, that's how your planet becomes overrun. Yeah, orcs are a problem in, in Warhammer. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, goblins, not that way. D&D orcs, not that way. Although they could be. Just putting it out there. Especially if you get some Spelljammer kind of stuff going, I could definitely see some overlap. All right, back to In any event. (laughs) Yeah, with goblins. Let me see if I can grab... I've got Volos over here, where it specifically calls out the name of their deity. And sort of the reason why they were all joined together is that each of the individual deities, so like the goblin deity, the bugbear deity, were overthrown by a greater, nastier... Tell me more. Tell me more. So yeah, so the goblin deity, Kerboyeg, mm-hmm. yeah, good K-H-U-R-G-O-R-B-A-E-Y-A-G. Nope, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> yeah, that's why I went with Kergorboyeg. Close enough. I don't speak a goblin. Just going to put it out there. Like I said, the holy symbol is a yellow and red striped whip made of leather. So you had, you know, Kergorboyeg, you had the bugbear, one of the bugbear deities, Krugek, and then the hobgoblin Nomog Gea, who were all subdued by Maglubiet. 
basically, if you want to speak goblin, what I'm learning is that you need a very different tongue structure than humans. Either that or you speak Welsh. That could be. Because some of these look like they could be Welsh. There's a lot of things that are together that I would not put together. A lot of consonants too close together for my English-speaking mind and mouth. Which, if you've seen Welsh, I'm not attempting to insult Welsh. Oh, I love Welsh. If Welsh you, is it's fascinating. Beautiful-sounding language, but it is impossible to parse unless you know what you're looking at. So that being said, each of these groups had this deity that was sort of overthrown. And so, yeah, they seem very different, but they are bound together by this divine force that basically says, you know, should your group come across another goblinoid group, you must be bound together. And goblins are sort of the workforce of that conglomerate. So you have the lashers, which are sort of the top cast. You know, they're in charge of strategy. They're in charge of keeping order. Then you have hunters that are specifically meant to go out and kind of like be the best wolf riders and roam the territory and hunt game and, you know, are your foot soldiers and your scouts. And then you have gatherers that are the second lowest cast that are more like, you know, gathering what's naturally available, but are charged with maybe checking traps, keeping track of the animals and keeping them fed. And then would use all sorts of like improvised weapons, so things like nets, caltrips, nooses on poles that they're used more for, you know, capturing animals and cooking meat and things like that. And then you have your sort of outcasts. So they do have a caste system, which is similar to some, you know, earth cultures, some real world cultures, which has its own set of interesting and unique problems but also allowed for, you know, flourishing society in a lot of senses. That type of hierarchical organization means that it's easy for a goblin to find their place in their society. So, yes, it has its, it definitely has problems as an outsider, but to a goblin, it's normal life. And so it's kind of how things go. And so, but they will have things like crowns and thrones, and it's all about appearance. And then they do have their own worship of magic users that they call booyogs. I like that word. And they chant booyog when there is a sorcerer around. Ooh. So there is this sense of, like, there are some who are innate casters that may have some wizardry or that may have, a, like, a, a sorcerer or a warlock mm-hmm. that has gained some innate power. Then you have those that are just wielders of the booyog that have, like, wands or stabs that may give them limited access to magic. Or one who maybe has a magical whip that allows them to command the respect of a small band. It goes on. So they have this whole societal organization around mages and you know, sort of the revered you know, shaman of the group. Mm-hmm. And then as far as layers, they you know tend to look for things that are cave spaces that they can use to house animals in, like wolves that they are you know, sort of commonly associated with. And then usually outcroppings where they can kind of see what's going on, see what's coming at them. You know, they want to have security. They want to have a shelter that they can return to. You know, it is a, a race of beings that want to have a home as sort of anarchic collective as it might be. Mm-hmm. You know, their whole goal is to kind of continue to be, and so they're going to find a, a place of security. Mm-hmm. And even in the, the sort of collected group, when they all come together into like a large warband, the goblins still kind of stick together, stick close to their animals, and look to the hobgoblins for you know, guidance and, and organization. 
so yeah, I mean, you know, your your goblins are the the rank and file of a of a, a total goblinoid race. Then I guess the next question is: Do we go into biology a little bit, or do you want to talk about the history of goblins, starting with first edition? So the good news with most of the the goblinoid races, the history is pretty consistent, going back. Basically, as time goes on, it gets a little bit more complex in the number of deities and how they're organized in, like, you know, 5th edition goes pretty deep into it. Volo's Guide to Monsters is a fantastic resource for kind of laying out the Forgotten Realms goblinoids. But historically, I mean, goblins have always kind of been goblins, you know, small, green, furtive, quick-to-action, riding wolves. It's straight out of The Hobbit. Goblins coming out of the mountains, chasing them, group of dwarves on their way to the Lonely Mountain. Like, they are exactly what you expect. The gnashing teeth and the sort of collected weapons and raiding from their stronghold out into the countryside. So, you know, historically, goblins are, have been pretty consistent. Whatever weapons they can get their hands on and go out into the world and, and seek greater glory and security. As I sort of alluded to earlier with Eberron, you know, there was a sense of a much more militarized, organized goblinoid race. So, I mean, really, I think it can be open to interpretation that you may have much more organized groups of goblins, and then you may have the ones that are just, here's everybody else's off-casts, and they've sort of built their own group, the Lord of the Flies goblins, that are just left to their own devices in the wilderness to, to make their own goblin society. We'll have our own goblin society with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> Gosh dang it. <laughs> Couldn't help yourself, could you? No, the Futurama mm-hmm. reference was too easy to reach for. Mm-hmm. It, it lives at the very front of the shelf. What's that shelf, babe? That shelf is just deep what's internet that, references. What's that shelf called? Memes. <laughs> oh gosh, I should know better than to ask. Yes, yes, you should. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, goblins, bugbears, hobgoblins, they are you know very much unchanged from those early days. And a lot of it is very much influenced by Tolkien. Oh, yeah, yeah. for straight up. <laughs> and he was in turn influenced, if you look back, it's a lot of Northern European folklore. It's the stories that the English and the, the Scots and, you know, the Irish and then some even into Scandinavia. There's always these sort of tales of, like, the trickster spirits that surround the houses and things and the fey folk things that go bump in the night yeah this is your goblin or your hobgoblin or your bugbear it is just sort of three increasingly large flavors of boogeyman the thing that's there to scare the children into doing their chores and brush your teeth or else cleaning up and well (laughs) right yeah it's the hobgoblin lived in your fireplace and Mm. if you didn't clean up, your house could get lit on fire, or ashes would get everywhere and get everything dirty, and then you'd get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, these were the stories you told kids to keep them in line. That was sort of where a lot of this originates. The Hobbit, as Tolkien's children's story, of course, included goblins that are, you know, out to get you and keep you from accomplishing your tasks. And certainly the goblins there riding wargs are far more dangerous than the ones that, like, tie your shoelaces together in the night because you didn't put your shoes away. Yeah, or stole the extra eggs out of the hen house. Right. But they still are in that same vein. They are... I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to necessarily call them malicious. They just are an, 
other intelligence. I just think they are. They just you know, are. Yeah. They have their own agenda, and they will not step back from fighting anything around them to achieve that agenda. I mean, I think that probably covers at least most of the history. I mean, there's you know, this one doesn't have a, a deep. There's a lot of lore to get mm-hmm. into. Yeah, and we could spend a whole episode just reading through Volo's Guide to Monsters and talking about what is there, or looking through the Dakani Empire. Mm-hmm. Both in the current Eberron, Rising from the Last War, or Wayfinder's Guide, mm-hmm. or Keith Baker's out there with a blog and he goes into in depth. He is the sage advice point for Eberron, and there is a large backlog of information, some of which includes goblins or the planes specific as they are to Eberron. You know, they are the same planes we expect the planes of positive and negative energy and, and fire and, and all these types of things, but there's some additional things there, like the plane of mm-hmm. dreams. Have the stats on a goblin changed much over time? Not really. I mean, they've always been a... They're fairly weak, and you're going to want to throw a bunch of them at the party. Okay. And the same is true with hobgoblins or bugbears. It's just, you know, hobgoblins are the the bigger, more intelligent, more malevolent form of goblin. And bugbears tend to be the stealthy assassins and frontline brutes Mm. of your your group. So, I mean, yes... The exact number for number stats are changed over time, but their roles have remained pretty well the same. The way that first edition kind of laid things out for bugbears specifically I was looking at was that it called out that if you find them in their lair, there will be males and females and children, and that the males will fight as bugbears and use bugbear stats, the females will use hobgoblin stats, and the children will use kobold stats, oddly enough. Huh. Speaking of kind of the kobold, so Mm -hmm. the idea being that instead of having to stat out individual age groups Mm -hmm. of a creature, they just said, hey, borrow these stats. They are child bugbears, but they have kobold stats. Mm -hmm. And the same remains true. I mean, if you look through the monster manual, it's easy to say, you know, I need a flying creature with night vision, but I'm going to call it something else. But hey, you can take the owl stats and make them what you need. Totally haven't done that for some of our games and interesting NPCs. Nope, not me. I guess we're ready for the biology a little bit. I think we can at least kind of get into the general concept and start to move forward with at least the goblin portion. Okay. So when I was looking through this, and this is going to kind of be the general rule, depending on any time we have a humanoid sort of monster race. That's back to the problems with having monstrous humanoids are evil races, which we'll get into a little bit more later um, on that discussion. The, basically, the best real-world equivalent I could find was human beings, homo sapiens, long-lost cousins, long-lost species or sibling species. So, let's get into some history here. Everybody ready for evolutionary biology lesson? Because I am. So, let's do some ground rules first. (laughs) There's a lot of not quite accurate information out there, theories or whatever, and it's constantly evolving all the time, especially because we get a lot of new genetic data and material and fossils, and we're much better at it now on analyzing and figuring out how we all relate and interrelate to each other. It's the same thing with dinosaurs we've learned with any other fossil record when these things were first discovered in the 1800s by europeans you know Mm -hmm. they presumably were likely discovered by others long before that but the european record that we base our knowledge on 
in the Western world. When a lot of these things were discovered in the late 1700s and the 1800s, they had to basically collectivize things by what they could see. And as the science has evolved, we've discovered that some things we thought were two different creatures were really juvenile forms of one creature or completely unrelated or more closely related than we initially thought. And the same is true with primate biology and human evolution and and human-related primates. And so if we go into that, so humans are primates. Basically what I've decided is that our goblins, our bugbears, our hobgoblins are also primates. However, humans, at least in real life, we did not evolve from apes. If anybody says you evolved from apes, their their idea, what they said is bad, and they should feel bad. It's outdated, <laughs> if nothing else. It is incredibly outdated. There was a split. We do have a common ancestor. Humans and the other great apes. These are your gorillas. These are your chimpanzees. These are your bonobos. These are your orangutans. They split from each other, from a common ancestor, into hominy and gorillany are the two major groups okay now one is not more advanced than the other here's another ground rule okay just different they're just different it's very common and you'll hear this language a lot where it's the oh well this life form is more primitive this is using a very ego human centric view of the world on that human is the epitome of evolution quote unquote which is using a bunch of arbitrary metrics that don't matter when it comes to evolutionary biology we are one end of one branch yes that's it yes we are one particular strategy that worked out well and so any of the other great apes they have been evolving just as long as we have and have settled on a different evolutionary strategy to deal with life And that's it. And so in that case, and in that vein, what I looked for in my research and found was that most likely that is kind of, if goblins and hobgoblins and bugbears existed, I would say that they would be some of our sibling species or cousin species. And that makes sense. The same overall body format is there, the same type of desire for organization, using tools, mm-hmm. and you know having collectivized society, the parallels are there. Yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back in time a little bit, everybody. Get back in the Wayback Machine with me. Alrighty. <laughs> Where we are going to go to Homo erectus. Okay. So Homo erectus is a common ancestor of the different, I will say, cousin species of Homo sapiens, okay? Homo erectus came out of Africa. Now, this is another thing that we need to establish. Humans, Homo sapiens, that's that's us, evolved in Africa, East Africa. And that is, the guess is about 200,000 years ago. There has been some more recent discoveries of another fossils that may be even older than that, but there's not quite enough evidence for everyone to be like, eh, yeah, we're, we're going to change the yeah, theory. Yeah, for sure. So we're just going to go with, at a minimum, about 200,000 years ago. Now, Homo erectus was the first sort of common ancestor that, as the name sort of suggests, if you guys sort of, if you're Latin, walked upright bipedally. This 
ancestor evolved in Africa, but also is thought to have gone into Eurasia at a couple different points. And so this actually, if we're going to talk about humans originating from Africa, we're going to have to also talk about the out of Africa hypothesis. So the idea is that any of the ancestors of Homo sapiens, as well as the other sort of cousin species, all originated from Africa, migrated out of Africa into Europe and Asia multiple times. Okay. And there's a lot of different theories and different ideas of how many times that happened and when it happened because you, and we're getting a much better understanding looking at genetic data of modern day humans on how that occurred. But there is at least a consensus that humans evolved in Africa and came out of Africa and that we all are, have a exact common ancestor in the same species. There are also multiple other species of hominid that mm -hmm. are now extinct, okay? So my thought is that if you have a goblin, a hobgoblin, a bugbear... All seemingly at least somehow related. Yes. What if those sibling species never went extinct? Okay. What would they look like now? And so... If we... And I mean, the fossil record is, you know, some of them were shorter, some of them had longer right. limbs, some of them had, had, you know, different shaped heads. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, if, you're, if, if you're a goblin, you're smaller. If you're a bugbear, you have long arms. Mm -hmm. If you, you know... And so okay. if you start looking at the fossil record and you start looking at the sort of the art in the monster manual versus the art that different anthropologists, taxonomists, evolutionary biologists have made, you start to see a lot of parallels, okay? So if we start with Homo erectus as our original ancestor, okay? Mm -hmm. This was one of the splits away from, it's a little bit later than in the, than from the other great apes or the gorilla group. So that split's still a little further back than Homo erectus. Still a little further back. But from Homo erectus, we have two different splits. Okay. One goes to, um, <laughs> called Flores Man, <laughs> is, is the term. So, this Homo florinensis was found in, on the island of Flores in, Indo in Indonesia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is also nicknamed the Hobbit. Yes. So, this fossil, a fossilized humanoid, and they'd found some more, and they'd found a couple instances of that was about... Four feet tall. Okay. So we're in that kind of goblin, mm -hmm. hobbit, halfling mm -hmm. range. All yeah. right. And has a lot of the features that you would associate with a smaller hominid. Okay? Sure. Smaller person. Now, that for a long time was considered to be a small species of archaic, like human, right? Mm-hmm. And that it survived up till about the arrival of, so unfortunately everyone, the current theory, and there's a lot of evidence for that, is all of our sibling species went extinct when, when Homo sapiens showed up. So a lot of them actually moved out of Africa sooner than Homo sapiens showed up, and then they went extinct after that. Coincidence? I think not. Couple of possibilities there. New diseases predation 
subsumation. Yes. So, you know, they were either wiped out by disease, much like those of you that know your American history. Unfortunately, several groups of Native Americans were given diseased objects. Yep, 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 yep. Problem there. Problem um, there. Or it could be a case of just Homo sapiens, you know, attacking an unknown mm-hmm. group, common, you know, warring bands. Or they may have just been subsumed and brought in as part of the overall group and the Homo sapien genes were the dominant traits and they just sort of blended and disappeared. Yep, and we will get into that a little bit later with another one of our relatives. Okay. And so the Homo floresensis, um, a lot of these words are really long and I'm very sorry. Uh-huh. How, do, how do you say that? Please say this. Please help me. Floresiensis? Close enough? <laughs> Close enough. Anyway. so Flores Man. We'll go with that one. Flores Man. Flores Man was three feet, seven inches tall. And there is some evidence that they survived for a long period of time and that there is existence up to about 50,000 years ago. But the skeleton material is somewhere between uh, 60,000 and 100,000 years ago. And that they did use stone tools, and had, so this kind of kind of follows, you know, right. with the goblins. Now, there is another very recently discovered small hominid in 2019. Okay, so just last year. So just last year, we had believed that that was basically Flores Man mm-hmm. was the smallest, closest relative. Hominid. Which three foot seven, if I look at the goblin traits, is between three and four feet. So yeah, mm-hmm. we're right on the money. We're right on the money. A new species of early human that was even thought to be even smaller than the so-called hobbit was actually found on, and you'll like this, the island of Luzon in the Philippines. Okay. I have been there. And so this is Homo luzonensis. In the Philippines, yeah. Luzon is the, the large main island. Mm-hmm. This one is also similar size, less than four feet, so less than 1.2 meters tall, and is the second known dwarf human on record. That's basically how they're saying it. But okay. They're not really dwarf humans, okay? They are a separate species, right? Right. So I would say a cousin sort of species. And that they have, they share a number of sort of features. They have very curved foot and finger bones. Okay. Which actually goes well with the goblin sort of, you know, look in a lot of the art, right? And the the art. Uh, Similar to those that are seen in Australopithecus, I would say. So Australopithecus is one of our other ancient sort of ancestors, as well as Homo habilis and Homo erectus, okay? But their molars and their teeth look a lot more like modern day humans. Okay, so kind of the grinding teeth in the back and the mm-hmm. sharper, more like cutting teeth in the front. Yep, yep. Okay. And so they had decided that this they still consider in the same genus, right? So we're all in the homo hominid, you know, genus, but that this should be um, a new species. It is about 67,000 years old. Okay. When we're talking about some of these different hominid species, a, re- a long time ago it was thought, okay, well, we got... We got Homo erectus, and then that led to this one, which led to this one, which led to this one. The classic evolution diagram, like, you know, the the great apes up to, like, Homo erectus, Homo Mm -hmm. habilis, all the way up. And then, you know, Homo sapiens down at that right end, 
and sometimes, you know, a question mark, a missing link, and it's like, well, it's a little less, well, okay, it's not linear at all. Mm -hmm. There's not necessarily a one direct pathway at this point when it's still unclear, you know, where we get to the exactly Homo sapiens coming out and where they suss out in the, the hierarchy at this point. Mm -hmm. Yep. Also, and kind of what I was more hinting at, is that several in early human history, in this out-of-Africa time, right, when they were moving into different parts of the world, is that Homo sapiens lived side by side with these other species. They were contemporaries, yeah. Yes. It wasn't that these other species came before and then we are the end, you know, it's like, no. We'll get into that a little bit if we talk about Neanderthals a little bit later. At least the current theories that looking at this newer mm -hmm. small hominid from Luzon is that they were a bit more, not quite as beefy as the Flores man. Okay, so, so they were small, yeah, so they're slider build, stockier. They also think that having those curved finger bones and toe bones actually made them very good climbers. Okay. And they thought that may have helped them adapt to island life. Which would make sense. In a particular way. They're not saying that they are back to the trees and are no longer bipedal. Maybe a more slender build. And, you know, having been to the Philippines, it is a fairly mountainous, volcanous environment. Mm -hmm. So being able to climb up hills, move through a jungle-like environment, that would be very advantageous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also that has to determine with body heat. Even when we, if you even think about tropical places, being smaller is actually a boon for you because you can have an easier time regulating your body heat. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about some of the very small deer that live in the tropics, right, where they're right. like itty bitty, right, in comparison to the big old fat Midwestern deer that we <laughs> see. White-tailed deer that, you know, it's the size of a, a small car. Car, right. Well, you need that to hold heat in, in when you're in a cold climate right. versus in a very warm tropical climate. You don't want to hold heat in. It's the last thing you need. Right, exactly. And so... You see that this in the evolution of different hominids, that the ones which went and stayed in a tr more tropical environment, and so if we were thinking about Papua New Guinea and we're thinking about different islanders and stuff like that, tend to be smaller. Smaller, slender, slider build. Versus we live in Minnesota and we talk to a bunch of people who are Norwegian descent and they're all... <laughs> Yeah. A bunch of giants. Yeah. Com comparably, <laughs> we, yeah. And the same is still true today, even in Homo sapiens, mm -hmm. that, you know, in certain parts of the world, there tend to be people that are of a larger build in cold climates. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look look at, at a picture of a, of a Scandinavian person next to a picture of someone from a Pacific island, yeah, there are going to be differences, but you tend to see, you know, a, a slighter, thinner build in places that are warm, and a stockier, heavier build in places that are cold. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's the adaptation of our ancestors remains and is passed down through a local area. Mm -hmm. and, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans. We're all Homo sapiens. Yes. And so it's you know, you can see that kind of advantage even in a single species, much less in related but different species. Like mm -hmm. you said, with deer, that you may have a tropical deer that's a you know three feet tall and weighs all of. 40 pounds and is outsized by medium-sized dogs and it's still a deer that's just as related to so to a deer in japan or a deer in siberia or a deer in america 
They're all still deer, they're, but they're, you know, closely related cousins as much as, as you know, a Flores man or a, a Luzon man would be mm-hmm. to, you know, Homo sapiens. Right. Or then, in our case, our goblin would be to another humanoid. Yes, exactly. And so basically how I would think of it if we had a real world equivalent is like, what if they never went extinct? What would they look like today? How would they differ? I mean, we could get into, if you want to, I can continue on with the hobgoblin sort of bugbear, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a great lead-in. And, mm-hmm. and, and the theory is not... It's a solid theory, and I think it's come up in the past even in other fiction. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the sort of, you know, what if humans continued down a, a lineage, or what if we had another contemporary that was more adapted to one environment or another. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and the example that comes to my mind from a young age is Terry Brooks, the Shannara series, that his fantasy elves and dwarves and trolls and, and goblins are all different humans. Yes. That in the far, you know, spoilers for books from the late 70s and early <laughs> 80s. And if you haven't read them, they're decent fantasy books. Um, his later ones... Uh, it shows you know, a great maturity that he's you know, still writing 30, 40 odd years later that the later books obviously have a little bit more depth. And the early ones are like, find the, the ancient sword of your family and defeat the evil. Right? They're not what I would call deep fantasy. I found them fun. They're enjoyable. I loved them as a kid. I still enjoy them. I... But do not go in looking for biting political commentary. No. It's about some half-elf boys from the woods finding a sword and defeating a big evil bad guy. But, you know, when you're stuck on a microscope for hours and hours on end, you know, it was pretty great. That's what you need. <laughs> Sometimes but it's what you need. <laughs> as you get further along, you know, they start to find these artifacts, and as you as you listen, if you are an astute reader, you'll notice objects from the modern human world described as these, like, ancient entities. You know, and, and, and magic. Magic. You know, because, you know, in the classic quote, anything, you know, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. And so, yeah, you know, being able to, to you know, wave a hand and have a light come on is clearly magic. Well, you know, we know that it's a, a infrared sensor that's been tripped that triggers a computer relay to turn on a light bulb. Right. But to a person a hundred years ago... The light bulb barely was, you know, a modern convenience, and being able to control it with a wave of the hand or with a spoken word is magic. And yet, you know, any of us can just say, you know, hey, Alexa, turn on the lights, and hey, lights go on. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's magic to any... Our living grandparents might call that magic. <laughs> So, you know, Terry Brooks has this, this indication that it was like there were humans, there was some great apocalypse, and through thousands of years of survival, these contemporary fantasy races come into existence. Well, who's to say that in, in Faerun, that there was not a distant humanoid ancestor that in one instance became goblins and hobgoblins and bugbears and, and then humans... And, you know, for that matter, any number of other humanoid races. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you know, we have, you know, elven creation myths and dwarven creation myths, and I'm sure goblins and gnolls and all these have their own creation mythos. But for some of the races, it's kind of left open-ended. Mm-hmm. So who's to say that there wasn't the ancient proto-goblin human 
And right. one path went one way and one path went another. And so if we want to go into the different paths a little bit... Go for it. As I said, we went in the Wayback Machine, Homo Erectus. Out of Homo Erectus, we have a split. Okay? One of them is Flores Man. And we do not know where Homo Lusinensis sort of falls into this yet. Okay? okay. They have it. last year. It was last year. They haven't been fully sequenced. It takes a little while <laughs> to sort of figure it out. And it's... A lot of things are slow right now. Can't imagine why. No idea. Anyway. The Backstreet past. Boys Tour, for those that are fans of particular internet shows. In any event. What? That's Game Grumps. Oh, anyway. The other way we could go is into Eurasia. So now we have gone into Europe. We are in Europe now. We have come from Africa. We are now in Faerun. Europe. I mean Europe. You I have mean Faerun. Faerun. <laughs> we are now in Faerun. That's a whole nother podcast if so we're not gonna we're not gonna go there so so we've, we've moved into eurasia we're in eurasia homo heidelbergus guess where the fossil was discovered everybody moscow <laughs> oh i'm assuming heidelberg germany yes good job babe <laughs> that is the ancestor or is of it austria whatever heidelberg it is in germany you oh, are correct right, jawohl okay. Gut. Um, There's a lot of German-speaking countries in that part of the world. This is true. <laughs> What'd you make that weird face for? Now I'm We afraid. don't talk about the 1940s. Moving we on. We don't talk about the 1940s. In Heidelberg, Germany, Homo Heidelbergus was discovered. That was the ancestor of modern-day Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. For a long time, people thought that Homo sapiens evolved from Neanderthals. That is incorrect. Okay? There was also a theory for a long time that they were just completely separate, and they were primitive, and we were the better of the two, and so they just died off evolutionarily, and we succeeded them. This is not correct either. Homo sapiens and Neanderthals were in Europe at the same time. Okay? Cotemporaneous. They had their own culture. They had their own art. They had their own tools. They had their own everything. And in some Homo sapiens, there is Neanderthal DNA because there was hybridization between the two species. Okay. And it is prevalent not just in like one isolated pocket. No. It is all across Europe and some parts of Asia. Yes. And so the current theory is now, something you mentioned earlier, is Neanderthals just came basically subsumed by Homo sapiens. Our best guess, the last thing that I had read, mm -hmm. um, which actually came from a, a book more specifically on, it was called The Origin of Anglo-Saxons. It was you know, more focused on, on that part of the world, but if you look at the history of Anglo-Saxons, it goes back to the Germanic peoples in Central Europe, and they had contact with Neanderthals mm -hmm. You know, in, in those early days. And it, they talk about a lot of the kind of genetic groups and how we identify where certain peoples came from. And, you know, the Anglo-Saxons had DNA from not only, you know, central Germany and the Rhine, but also, you know, Norway, Denmark, the western parts of the Asian steppe. I mean, there was all of this sort of intermingling in that area just because there are, are points of light medieval times. Nobody traveled between villages is a horrifically incorrect image of history. Yes. People always move. It's the one thing that we do consistently besides, you know, warring and, and eating, mm -hmm. is we move. 
early peoples were nomadic. We moved out of Africa on multiple occasions to multiple yes. different parts of the world. And so in this instance, Homo heidelbergus is thought to be the second species after Homo erectus to come out of Africa. And that after that, that there was a specific, so Neanderthals evolved in Europe exclusively. So instead of these other instances where they evolved in Africa and moved out, and that modern day Homo sapiens also evolved in Africa and then came out again and then interacted. The third wave, they were the ska humans. Yes, the ska humans. <laughs> There's a music history joke because it was, you know, the, the first British invasion and then new wave mm-hmm. and then ska was third wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know way too many random things. Don't. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> I'm just talking to her. Let's just don't, just don't ask. It's fine. So yes. So the third wave. Um, I'm fun at trivia night. In any event, you always win, though. It makes it fun. <laughs> I don't always win, but rarely last. <laughs> anyway, so Homo sapiens came, and the Neanderthals were already there, and they intermingled like most things do. So we should also probably, I haven't discussed this earlier, but I should probably say this. So a definition of a species, okay? Yes. As opposed to a subspecies, a race or whatever, right? Note to later selves. Maybe edit this part earlier. Yes. (laughs) Species is a group, a population of individuals that they either cannot, that cannot breed with another population for a variety of reasons. There is either genetic reasons that is not viable. There's plenty of instances in that, you know, mm-hmm. and even, for example, modern day hybrids. A horse and a donkey get you a mule. Technically, that is not viable because that mule is sterile. They cannot breed, they cannot have babies. Okay. Exceedingly strong and powerful. Not capable of reproduction. Yes. They have what's called hybrid vigor, which we have actually discussed in previous episodes on yes. sort of that idea, on at least certain physical traits. But that would be making that it's like, okay, horses and donkeys are separate species, right? Mm-hmm. Because they cannot have viable offspring for a genetic reason. Then there are species which speciate due to spatial reasons. They don't exist in the same places. Right. And so in this case, that is kind of how Homo sapiens and Neanderthals occurred. Is Neanderthals evolved in Europe independently of Homo sapiens in Africa before right. Homo sapiens moved out of Africa and went into that third migration in Europe. And Asia and wherever and else Asia they felt and like. And wherever else they felt like, yes. Then there are temporal reasons. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is is that they breed at a different time of year or a different season or whatever, and so they will never intermingle in that case. Or they existed at two different times. Right. They may look identical, Right. but they existed, existed. you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of years right. apart. And I'm sort of thinking on, like, modern-day species, right? right, where it's like, okay, you can see, like, certain... This variety of mayflies breeds in actual May, and another one only breeds in June. They are two distinct species because they will never intermingle. Yes, and so they will never go into cross-genetic material, even if, in theory, it would be possible. You could stick them in a big aquarium all together, and they would not intermingle and breed. Yes. Because their biological clocks are off. And so there are cases where, for example, like ligers or, you know, some other different types of hybrids which are done in in a more of an artificial environment, 
is that yes, this is technically possible, but will not happen out in the wild because of those... African lions don't live in the same place Siberian tigers do. Yes. The hybridization is beautiful and gigantic and a horrifying killing machine. Uh However, it doesn't exist in the wild because... African lions and Siberian tigers don't exist anywhere near each other. Yes. And so that is our spatial separation. Okay. So that there are plenty of these times where basically when Homo sapiens came to Europe and Neanderthals were already there, there is enough Neanderthal DNA to say that there was hybridization and that there were communities that worked together and lived together. And enough that it was not a one-time event. No. This was not like a freak occurrence and, you know, if you have Neanderthal DNA, you're related to this famous person, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's not it's not a, like, Queen of England situation where it's like, a, yes, I have royal British blood. I'm like, well, yeah, 19 generations back, some distant cousin of yours might have been related to the royal family. Big whoop. Mm-hmm. No, this is like a significant portion of European, you know, modern humans have DNA that can be traced directly to Neanderthals and only to Neanderthals. Yes. How I was looking at in this sort of evolutionary tree is that Homo heidelbergus, and this is from, I looked at, because I'm a nerd, skull pictures and other ideas of sort of art and things. They're kind of a lot like a hobgoblin just physical characteristics wise and a bugbear looks a heck of a lot like a neanderthal it's valid you know the the artwork of neanderthals tends to be the sort of heavy sloping brow lots of body hair long arms then you look at a bugbear it's a stretch armstrong wolverine <laughs> they got the big pointy hair yeah, lots of facial, facial hair, hair long arms sloping forehead like they yeah i can see it yeah also because Homo heidelbergus is a bit stouter build than we are. And muscular. Basi- muscular. And so basically what happened is that in this evolutionary tree is one branch became more, what the term is gracile. Slender, finer, smaller finger bones, let, not near as a stocky build. Delicate. Delicate. And that's our Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. And then we have our Neanderthals, which would be our bugbears in this instance. So, huge, muscular, somewhere between six and eight feet tall, and between, you know, 250 and 450 pounds. I mean, they're big. And so what I'm suggesting here is the hobgoblin was the ancestor of humans and bugbears. Okay. And that they still... But that, the, that instead of sort of going extinct, is that humans would be a subspecies. And that bugbears would also be a subspecies of those. And they're all, you know, siblings. They're, they're yes. you know, sister species, cousin sister species. Sister species, cousin species, how, whatever term you want to use. And you see this all the time in real life of various different species and subspecies and varieties of different ones which diverged from each other over time. And bottlenecked, and potentially. Bottlenecked. Or... For example, if we're talking about like Neanderthals, mm-hmm. which were Homo erectus that went to Europe and then further diverged and specialized, right, is that we would call this a founder effect. Mm-hmm. So the founder effect is that we have a smaller population and we are isolated, and so the genetics in that population are limited because we have we don't. There's only so many 
only so many to exchange with and are available. Now, this is different than a genetic bottleneck. A genetic bottleneck is we have a big population. Then some sort of cataclysm happens where it drastically reduces the population. Disease, catastrophe, like earthquake, volcanoes, ash clouds, meteors. But Dinosaurs got genetic bottlenecked into non-existence. No, they're birds now. <laughs> well, we, we already talked about that before. But the end result is similar. Founder effect or bottleneck, either way, the end result is similar on that you have... Limited gene pool. Limited gene pool, and so certain traits get kept. Yeah, become and become fixed. fixed in the population, that's the term. Those who survived in Europe were more bugbear-like in this instance after the first one because that was advantageous to be. <laughs> and the, you know, the founder effect there was that it was this limited population that had separated off from the, the main group in mm-hmm. Africa mm-hmm. and had you know, migrated over mountains and through deserts and wandered into Central Europe someplace. Yes. And you know there, and part of, and on top of that, there's potential for genetic bottleneck in that there were a couple of ice ages during that time frame right. that would have limited population growth in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's thought that that may have been why there was the intermingling between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, as they Homo sapiens had arrived, and then, well, it's going to be hard to grow food and survive here, and that they worked with the locals that knew how to deal with the colder climate and the longer winters and the shorter days that they had not been used to in, you know, tropical Africa. Yes. There's a variety of different ways that, you know, you could look at this and say, at least in D&D terms, fun thought experiment is all of our hominid relatives have gone extinct. And there's still some argument on the, were they really separate species were they just subspecies of each other so sometimes they're called archaic humans were we really all just the same thing and that they were separated because as i said time and space of some yeah there was it's the theory of and genetics have started to show this that there is a relationship between the native americans you know first peoples in the western hemisphere and far eastern asia that there's interrelation there in, in you know the Inuit peoples and that you know the, the land bridge theory is prevalent in the Western Hemisphere, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But there's also been some thought lately that even land bridge isn't necessary. There's island chains that you know, breach that gap. The Aleutians go most of the way to what is modern Russia, mm-hmm. and so there are you know far eastern Russian people that share genetics, but also language with some far northern north american peoples Mm -hmm. and so there are there's artifacts but again it's it's, okay this is your founder effect that these populations had traveled separate from the group and now each has some unique identity but still holds some common ancestry some common and linguistically genetically socially and in their survival strategies you know they both live in in cold Mm -hmm. arctic climates and have to survive very short summers and very long dark winters yep so what is their strategy for that? Well, you mm-hmm. know, in our D&D sense, it may have been that, you know, we, we often think of, of the goblinoid races, and this is true specifically in Eberron, but also in Faerun, that a lot of them are, you know, cave dwellers. Mm-hmm. And we have that same image of Neanderthals, that they were cavemen, you know, the, the, the fur clothing and wielding clubs and, you know, dragging mm-hmm. their knuckles. Again, it's not good imagery. No. But it is the imagery we have to work with, unfortunately. 
So now it's, oh, well, now that there was interbreeding with Neanderthals, well, now they've been elevated. Now they're this noble savage. Horrible, horrible language. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Hmm? But it's the term that was applied once people started to realize that, yeah, maybe Neanderthals were around at the same time as humans and that you know, we, we, we elevated Homo sapiens, you know, deigned to allow them near us sort of thing. Again, a lot of bad, bad European thought process. But... I like to call it the European superiority complex. Yeah, it's definitely there. There is, a, again, a lot of troubled history. World history is fraught with it. Um, as I said, the two things that people are always doing is fighting and moving, and usually moving to go fight other things, typically for food and land. Your goblins maybe went into an underground area or over a mountain range and became isolated and became you know more bugbear-like. Mm-hmm. And then a group that maybe moved into a plains area that needed to be faster and, you know, more adept with their tools and make finer tools to work their environment became more of a a human, you know, recognizable modern fantasy human. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that, you know, the hobgoblin niche didn't still exist. The bugbear niche didn't still exist and that the goblins themselves didn't still, you know, exist, and that we're all just cousins of each other in some sort of capacity. Now, there is another theory, and we talked about this with each other a little bit on if you don't like the sort of interrelated, you know, idea of these different species, because then that also gets into our somewhat problematic uses of language and monstrous species. I have brought this up before, and it's the term convergent evolution. Now, convergent evolution means the same design, evolutionary design strategy, evolved multiple times because it works well, okay? Dwarves have their own creation mythos. Elves have their own creation mythos. Drow have their own creation mythos. So the idea is that did the bipedal human form evolve multiple times independently from different races. And this is called convergent evolution. Or my favorite term for it, the crab problem. The crab problem. So the crab problem, also called... I think you called, look at the technical term Yeah, is, is carcinization. Okay. Carcinization, or the crab problem, is that crabs... On in, Earth. On Earth have evolved six different times independently of each other. Because apparently the design for crab is really good. So see, that's the thing. If you want to say what's more advanced, you know, oh, people are the most advanced. People have shown up once. Once. Crabs have shown up six different times. Crab people. <laughs> ultimate evolution. Just saying. The ultimate evolution. Yeah. If we w- if we want to put the arbitrary, you know, if we want to pick which, which one's, one's the, the best. best. Which one? Apparently, the best. according to the laws of nature, it's crabs. crabs. Is ten-legged arthropods with gills and and claws and pinching and hard exoskeletons. Yes. Uh, That's peak performance. There it is, folks. Peak performance. You heard it here, folks. Peak (laughs) performance. We haven't done a band in... Crabs with abs. Crabs with abs. Peak performance. Uh, We haven't done a band name yet. Peak performance. It might be crabs with abs. Crabs with abs. The crab problem. Yes. So the crab problem is a great post-punk band name. I'm throwing it out there. Yes. So it is like the example of convergent evolution because in which a crustacean evolves into a crab-like form, 
versus a non-crab-like form. So basically they have put crustaceans into crabs and, and non-crabs. Crab-adjacent and non-crabs. And so this is good independently, okay, in at least five. It's thought to be five or six. In decapod crustaceans, right, most so notably... ten-legged, ten-footed. Ten, notably king crabs, mm-hmm. which are thought to have evolved from hermit crabs. There's a leap. Right? Hermit right? crabs are very small for right? the most part, and king crabs are very not. Mm-hmm. King crabs are also delicious. I've never eaten a hermit crab. I could not tell you how good it is. Being it's a bottom-feeding species, Tyrannosaurus king crabs, maybe it's good, but it wouldn't be worth the meat. I just... I think there's too little there and too much shell. That aside. The other examples are the family Porcelainidae, or porcelain crabs, which are closely related to squat lobsters. The hairy Back to crabs with abs. Squat lobsters. <laughs> Do you want me to look this are up? Are these lobsters that just have great butts? Uh, or are they just look. real low to the ground? Okay. It, it, wait, aren't they supposed to have ten... Appendages? I count eight. Or is this the non-crab? So, squat lobsters are a dorsal ventral flattened crustacean, long tails curled underneath, and are found in two separate families and form the decapod order, including hermit crabs and mole crabs. Okay. So they have super big, long claws, Mm -hmm. and then like six legs sticking out. It looks like if you blew up a tick and gave it long claws and made it red and live in the ocean. Everyone have fun with that image. Nightmare fuel. Nightmare fuel. Well, that, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here yeah, for. If you've learned anything, it's be afraid. <laughs> be afraid. Nature's scary. Nature's scary. So then there's the hairy stone crab. Mm-hmm. Oh, stone crab's so good. And the coconut crab. I might be hungry. Coconut crabs are terrifying. Yes. Coconut crabs are Because they're the absolutely... size of a garbage can. <laughs> and like a street-side garbage can. They're big. Yeah. Coconut crabs are horrifying. And then true crabs, which I don't know. Let me go look. Is that just crustacean true lies? I'm, I'm lost. Okay, I'll go look up what, what, what counts as a true crab. The term true in biology is another like horrifyingly overused term. Well, we already talked about the problems with true bugs last time. True this, true that. that. Okay, yeah, but half the time what, what is conceptualized as the true form is not the like most common prevalently thought no, of No, it's form. the one that was found first. So this is like uh, sativa as a as a Latin name, as a scientific name. Yes, which sati- means cultivated. cultivated. So a lot of our crop species are something genus, whatever it is, sativa, because no one could come up with a better word. It's real uh, bad. Most prevalent example that almost every human being on the face of the earth has eaten: Oryza sativa, rice. It's everywhere, in some format. Okay, so now I've looked up the true crab. Ah, the one true crab. The... Ah! Bre- breaky... Breaky... No, I can't uh, say break it. dancing crabs. No! All right. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, how do you pronounce that? Brachyura? Yeah. Okay. Brachyura, not break dancing crabs. Whatever. Typically have a very short projecting tail abdomen. Brachy is for short. Yeah, okay. Ura, tail. And usually hidden entirely under the thorax. I live in the ocean, freshwater, blah, blah, blah. So they're bobtailed crabs. There's not much of a tail there. No. Nope. Right, I follow. No, nope, I follow. It's, it is the traditional crab shape. It is. Well, the... one of the five, apparently. Yep. 
And then many other animals with similar names are the hermit crabs, king crabs, porcelain crabs, horseshoe crabs, and crab lice. Crab lice just, again, sounds like mashing two things that should never meet. How are horseshoe crabs part of that? Because they are ancient, weird, otherworldly-looking creatures. How are they a true crab? No, they are not. So, sorry, um, you misunderstood me. So those things I listed were not true crabs. Okay, so there's true crabs and then everything else. All right, that makes more sense because it's like... Okay, there's no way a horseshoe crab is a true crab. Yes, and so there are true crabs, and then there's everything else, and the everything else is where it splits into like the these are the different and... these are the different ways that evolution has made the crab again. Because okay. again, crab peak performance. Yes, everyone, you heard it here. There's the thought experiment, and that's the thing. If you're like, oh well, at least crabs are in the ocean. Again, coconut crabs are horrifying. They live on land. They yep. will crawl out onto land, and they are gigantic. They are the size... They are actually bigger than some dogs. Yes. Coconut crabs. If you are afraid of crabs, you are correct. <laughs> and they are coming for it's you. It's like you say, it's like, if you're not afraid of crabs, you are incorrect. Right? Yeah. Like, you better... <laughs> yeah. Humans should be afraid of crabs. Clearly, evolution wants crabs to work real bad. <laughs> and they've worked. They've worked multiple times. Yeah, eventually well, it's going to get one right... That will supplant humans. You cannot convince me otherwise. That is my ancient aliens theory for the week. It's like, it's not, they didn't build the pyramids. No, crabs built the pyramids. Prove me wrong. Oh my god. No, but I mean, that's the thing. Like, if, 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 if a, a random evolutionary process came up with the crab multiple times... Whatever is driving that process really wants crabs to work. So clearly, that is the end goal. Hominids are a poor excuse for a crab. So what I'm There's trying not nearly to say, enough limbs. What I'm trying to say earlier. This will probably get edited out, but it's funny anyway. No, I'm keeping this. Um, but uh, we're gonna change the episode name. It's gonna be like Bugbears and Goblinoids. Crabs are peak performance. What? Crabs, the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy. Time? No. Crabs. Crabs. Worse. Time crabs. (laughs) Crabs in four dimensions. (laughs) Damn it, I gave Jerry ideas. 40 crabs, it's happening. We're not caught up. I know it's coming. (laughs) You thought the fundamental court was bad. Meet the fundamental crab. Band name. <laughs> Are crabs impressive in D&D? Apparently they're impressive in real life. <laughs> they should be impressive in D&D. <laughs> this is why I love the crab problem. It derails everything. No, the crab problem is perfect. The crab problem is great. And I know that anytime we bring up convergent evolution, the crabs, the crabs are going to come right back it around. It sticks in my brain. No, And I don't great. remember a lot of biology, so the fact that it sticks in my brain, it's one more reason that the crab is the ultimate. ultimate. <laughs> the ultimate form. The ultimate form that God intended is a crab. <laughs> Cradam and Eve? There's Crab-a-man something there. No. No, 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 we have no. to make this work now. <laughs> I don't this wa- is the but true I don't horror. Want, I don't want you to make it work. I don't want it. <laughs>
I don't want it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. The ultimate creation mythos. It's not turtles. It's no. not elephants. It's crabs <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> Nothing but crabs. A ten-legged interdimensional body horror. <laughs> it's all crabs. We are but infinite crabs in a human suit. That's the true Cthulhu ending. It's just crabs. I'm just gonna put it out there. Yeah, you just said the words. We are. But yeah. No, there's my Cthulhu moment. We, we are, are but infinite, infinite crabs, crabs in a, in a human, human suit. suit. Yeah. What about it? You need me to pause? You good? No. No. Keep the tape rolling. This is just too good. Just keep, keep the tape rolling. This is too good. So you thought drunk me last night was good. I have had zero alcohol today. Yeah. Just, just imagine, it's listeners. It's the power of crabs. <laughs> The true crab inside us all. Oh, God. What was this episode about? I don't remember. We're, we're talking. We were supposed to be talking about goblins and bugbears and hobgoblins. And then you got... Welcome and then, to crab talk. Then, welcome to crab talk. Here's your host. That's it. We're changing the whole oh, format. Sorry, it's all crabs, crabs all the time. From now on. I'm the Alex Jones of crabs. Oh, gosh. Dang it. Okay. So, crab spiracy theories. Crab spiracy, please stop. Please just stop. I can't. I can't. This is what it's evolution too late. wants. This is what evolution wants. I'm giving in. I'm giving in to it's our crab overlords. It is not life finds a way. It's crabs. Crabs find, find a way. way. Life finds a way to make crabs, and then Jeff crabs crab find bloom. a way. <laughs> All right. So, convergent evolution. It could have happened. That goblins and hobgoblins and bugbears and humans and elves so and everything. Favoring, it's the goblin problem, not it's the crab It's the goblin problem. problem, yes. It could be the goblin problem. That goblins are peak performance. And they just keep coming back. Yep. Are humans not just pale goblins? It's true. I'm okay with it. Because then, if we do it that way, then what it is is there's now we've had convergent evolution of these... Of, to the humanoid, you know, like, this design works well. Apparently the goblin design works well. So we'll yeah. make it the... So Faerun is the goblin problem. The goblin design works well and has occurred in multiple... Explains why there's always goblins. Right. Well, now also... They're, on, they're in Eberron, right? Couldn't, could kobolds be... I think kobolds were there at the beginning. Oh, you think so? Kobolds will just always be. They were there with dragons. That's true. And depending on which plane of existence, Eberron, it was all the dreams of dragons. Would kobolds not be part of that dream? This is true. We will do a kobold episode. Oh yeah, that has to happen. That has to happen. Or kobolds just really scaly goblins. Maybe that's what it is. That's kind of what I was, you know, where it's just like, is this another example of convergent evolution? Is like this, you know, is the... Is, are Small greedy entities yes it's like are we not all just goblins because the thing is is it's like we talk about how it's like okay goblins are small greedy entities and i'm like humans are kind of small, big fickle spirits yeah, yeah, I'm yeah like, it, it tracks i'm like and i'm like how is that different from humans we're just slightly bigger <laughs> yeah some of us apparently weren't even slightly bigger no exactly exactly so, Maybe it is just the goblin problem. The goblin, the goblin crab problem. problem. The goblin crab problem. Now that... Goblin problem. Now I'm Crabs. looking up... 
I am seeing if there is a such thing as a goblin crab. Oh, there almost has to be. I, I know. There's a goblin shark. To. There's a goblin shark. I do not see a goblin crab. There's a goblin spider. Okay. I'm sure. Which I'm... spider to crab is not a far jump. They are arthropods. Nope, they are arthropods. But no, there is not a there is not a goblin crab, although. Or as... arthropod adjacent. Scorpions Arth... are arthropods. Yes. So, I think the thing that we did forget to do is, do you want to, do we want to come back around to the monsters and talk about hobgoblins and bugbears? I think the crab problem is a good stopping point for the first half of this two-pointer. Okay. (laughs) Because I think, yeah, in order to reconvene, we need to go back and, like, rebuild the rails here a little bit. Because we are very much off them in a ten-legged crab-like direction, scuttling sideways from the topic at hand. Yes. If you will. The the crab problem. It's a real big problem, guys. Coconut crabs. You will not sleep. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, If you have any questions, comments, or you have any suggestions of topics that we should cover in the future, please tweet those at us at at nat20pod or email them to us at natural20podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you would like any of your adventures in your own D&D games about different creatures that you had fun with, please submit those stories to us and we will feature them at the beginning of our next podcast in our creature feature. We would like to thank Embers Tide for our intro and outro music. We would like to thank Burnham with three M's for our beautiful profile and banner artwork. We would also like to thank Shadow Dunn for listening to all of the rough drafts of our podcast. He listens to our mistakes so you don't have to. And, as always, keep rolling a natural 20.